John chapter 4 this morning. When John the Baptist came on the scene, he caused quite a stir, didn't he? But then when Jesus came on the scene, even more so, to the point where it says that all of John's disciples started following Jesus. And remember, the Pharisees already asked John the Baptist, are you the Christ? I mean, so much was happening out there in the wilderness that they wanted to know, are you the Christ? He said, well, no, I'm not the Christ. But Jesus was the Christ. So he wasn't ready for the Pharisees to ask him that question just yet. So we saw last time that he knew what he needed to do. He needed to get out of Judea, which is the southern region of Israel, and he needed to make his way towards Galilee, which is in the north. But the Bible tells us that he chose to go through, that he needed to go through Samaria. Now, as we saw last week, nobody needed to go through Samaria. Nobody wanted to go through Samaria. No Jew would go through Samaria. Because the Jews hated the Samaritans, and the Samaritans hated the Jews. They would take, as irrational and as illogical as it would seem, the most inconvenient route ever to circumvent that entire region in order to go to Galilee. But Jesus went there because he needed to go not for physical reasons, but for spiritual reasons. He had an appointment, as we saw last time, with a woman at the well. That was part one. Today is part two of the woman at the well. She had come, as we saw last time, looking for water, but Jesus introduced her to living water. He said to her, if you drink this water, you'll thirst again. In other words, you drink of this water or anything that the world has to offer you, you will thirst again. It doesn't quench the thirst of the soul. This week he talks about a spiritual hunger that we all have. There's a food that he's going to introduce us to, that we're hungry for. It's the kind of food that really deep down satisfies Remember the Rolling Stones, they sang that song, I Can't Get No Satisfaction? That's one of the only true lyrics in secular music that's actually biblically accurate. I can't get no satisfaction. Correct. You cannot get any satisfaction. They were right about that. Interestingly, and along the same lines, Rolling Stone magazine had an interview a while back with Brad Pitt, who said something fascinating. And it's actually not very surprising, but this is what he said. He said, man... I know all these things are supposed to seem important to us, the car, the condo, our version of success, but if that's the case, why is the general feeling out there reflecting more isolation and desperation and loneliness? If you ask me, I say toss all this. we got to find something else. Because all I know is that at this point in time, we are headed for a dead end, a numbing of the soul, a complete atrophy of spiritual being, and I don't want that. And the interviewer went on to ask him, so if we're headed toward this kind of existential dead end in society, what do you think should happen? And he said, hey, man, I don't have the answers yet. The emphasis now is on success and personal gain. I'm sitting in it, and I'm telling you, that's not it. I'm the guy who's got everything, I know. But I'm telling you, once you've got everything, then you're just left with yourself. I've said it before, and I'll say it again. It doesn't help you sleep any better, and it doesn't help you wake up any better because of it. Interesting. He's almost there. He's hungry. 
He just doesn't know what kind of food he needs. He doesn't really realize what he's thirsting for just yet. I told you before we were joking that today's the first day, well, it's kind of the second day of football season. But remember, for those of you who are here on Christmas Eve, we talked about what Tom Brady said. Tom Brady, the quarterback of the New England Patriots, he's won three Super Bowls. He's a champion. He's respected. He's very wealthy. He's well admired by people. And he was doing an interview on 60 Minutes, and you can watch it on YouTube. He said this. He said, why do I have three Super Bowl rings and still think there's something greater out there for me? I mean, maybe a lot of people would say, hey, man, this is what it is. I've reached my goal, my dream, but I think it's got to be more than this. I mean, this can't be all that it's cracked up to be. What's the answer? The interviewer asked him. I wish I knew, he said. I wish I knew. Well, for the woman at the well, she found it. The search was over. The mystery in life was solved. She had finally met her Lord. She had encountered him at the well. Her soul now was quenched. Her hunger was satisfied because she saw that only he was the one that could truly provide for her needs and for all of our needs as well. Now, while all of this was going on last week, you may remember that the disciples went off into town to get lunch, which would have been hard for them. Remember, 12 very Jewish, very nationalistic men going into this area of Samaria with the hated foe, this longtime rivalry, this nemesis of them for so many years. And they had to go buy lunch for the disciples because, remember, they were wearied from their journey. But now, here they are, they're coming back, and they're probably catching the end of this conversation between Jesus and this woman at the well. And that's where we pick up, where we left off last time, in verse 27. It says, and at this point, his disciples came and they marveled. Literally, it blew their mind when they saw him speaking with this woman. It says that he talked with a woman, not just a woman, but at that, of course, a Samaritan Woman, that would have been taboo for a Jew for sure. Yet no one said, what do you seek or why are you talking with her? No one said it. I'm sure they wanted to, but no one said anything. You know, after spending some time with Jesus, the disciples began to come to expect the unexpected in hanging out with him. I guess at this point they figured they might as well give the Lord of the universe the benefit of the doubt that perhaps he knew what he was doing at this point in time. And so maybe, just maybe, he didn't need their counsel so much. So they chose to bite their tongue. But you know, they wouldn't always bite their tongue, right? We're going to see that as we study through the book of John, that every once in a while they felt the need to step in and tell the Lord how he ought to do things. Remember in Matthew 16 when Jesus was talking to the disciples. He was predicting his death. He said, I will suffer many things from the elders and the chief priests of the scribes and be killed. And Peter said, oh, far be it from you, Lord. This shall not happen to you. I disagree, Lord. That's what Peter said. And then there was that other point later on when he was going to wash the feet of the disciples. Remember that scene? And Peter said, oh, you shall never wash my feet. I think Peter might have been the one to coin the phrase, no, Lord, Think about that phrase, no, Lord. It doesn't really make any sense. No, creator of the universe, Lord of my life, no. It doesn't make any sense. If he is the Lord, 
and he is the Lord of your life, and he's the Lord of my life, then he knows what's best, period. And there's nothing else to debate. And as a Christian, you have to come to expect a little bit of the unexpected in your life. Things don't go the way always that we want them to go. And he has a plan for our lives. And I'll tell you what, I'm totally satisfied with whatever he wants. If I'd had it my way, it would look very different. And I would think that I would be happy, but I know I would, would have been miserable if I had done it my way, according to my plan and my schemes. He knew exactly what he was doing when he said, boys, we're going through Samaria. He knew exactly what he was doing when he struck up this conversation with this woman at the well. Not only did he know that she would receive from him, but he also knew that what would happen because of this divine appointment, it would change an entire village. It says in verse 28, the woman then left her water pot, went her way into the city, and said to the men, why the men? Well, think about it. Here's a woman who was known for sexual immorality. And so she said to the men, come, see a man who told me all the things I ever did. Gulp. Could this be the Christ? So they went out to the city and came to him. Men, come see. Here's a man who told me all the things that I ever did. Well, we better find out what he knows. So they're going to come out to see how this man knows so much and what it is he actually knows. But did you notice there that after this conversation with Jesus, she just left her water pot? She'd come out to get water. That's what she was there for. She just leaves the water pot, the water pot there at the well. Great illustration for you and for me. Because all of a sudden, what she had been taught was that the things of this world don't satisfy, and all of a sudden, she left the things of the world behind. All of a sudden, the water wasn't that important to her anymore. It didn't really make any difference. It wasn't what's important. In fact, even we can see that in Jesus here as we continue, that all of a sudden, when they arrived and they got into town and they were wearied and they were hungry and they were thirsty, even now for Jesus, that wasn't so important. Look what it says. Verse 31, in the meantime, his disciples urged him, saying, Rabbi, eat. But he said to them, I have food to eat of which you do not know. Therefore, the disciples said to one another, has anyone brought him anything to eat? <laughs> now, a woman who's slaved over a meal in the kitchen, uh, over a hot stove, you know, and brought it out to their family, and they tell them that they're not hungry, can empathize a little bit, if that's ever happened to you before, with the disciples here. I've made a lot of mistakes as a husband. I don't think I've ever made that one. Um, but when, uh, remember when they arrived, they were wearied, they were thirsty. He sat by the well. He sent the disciples into town to grab some lunch, to get some food. So the disciples think they're coming back. Hey, we braved the elements. We went into town. We walked through that town, those people to get lunch for you, and they think they're heroes because they scored some McDonald's or something like that, and yet the Lord is going, no, nah, no thanks. Here's a quarter pound of cheese. No, I'm good, because I have food to eat that you really don't know about. Isn't that interesting? That because of the Lord's conversation with this woman, he was refreshed. You ever done that in your life? Ever missed a meal because you were just hanging out with the Lord or you were serving God? You know, the very best way to get out of a funk or a bad attitude or to get away from your problems is instead to focus on someone else. 
to spend time with a different person, to minister to somebody else. You know, what I can tell you is, from all the people that I've met or come across down throughout the years that were just miserable, they typically, they typically have one thing in common, and that is they're not spending a whole lot of time ministering to other people. They tend to be inwardly focused. Remember, coming to Bible studies and fellowship and worship, that's great, but that's just part of the deal right there. The Christians that I know that have the most joy are the ones that are praying for and spending time with and serving other people, loving on others. But the disciples didn't quite understand exactly what he was talking about at this point because like the woman at the well, they're focused on the physical at this point. Remember last week she was all about the physical and she was missing, missing some of the spiritual underpinnings that the Lord was trying to teach her last time. The disciples are missing that here as well because they're thinking of the physical. The woman didn't realize that her spiritual thirst could only be quenched by Jesus Christ. And similarly, they weren't understanding that their deep down hunger could never be satisfied with burgers and fries. Jesus said to them, my food is to do the will of him who sent me and to finish his work. It's not to say that Jesus didn't eat. We know he did. But what he's saying is, is that deep down nourishment, deep down refreshment, what sustains me is doing the will and the work of the Father. It's been said that the sinner's greatest need is the free gift of salvation, but the believer's greatest need is to do and finish the will and work of God. You know, so often when we are frustrated physically, when we're going through stress or when we're tired, we always first think we've got to solve that problem physically. I've got to stop eating this junk food and start eating right. Or I've got to get more sleep at night. Or i got to start going to the gym and start working out. And while all those things may be true, and while it might be argued that for a Christian we should be doing all of those things, Jesus is encouraging his disciples that the true strengthening of the soul comes from spiritual things. Leading this woman who was headed for hell unto salvation. Now that's the kind of thing that satisfies for you and for me. Any kind of service, if you've shared your faith with someone, when you lead someone to Christ, or these guys who were here yesterday working at this building, you don't know who they were, but they were here just cleaning things up. They're changing out these rooms, fixing things up for the children's ministry and for our fellowship hall. Soon that fellowship hall will be redone. And when those men who serve the Lord to get this building ready for his glory when they first have one of Big John's cheeseburgers, after the fellowship hall is finally done, that burger is going to taste good. It's going to taste really, really good. Jesus said in John chapter 9, I must, and those one of those musts of the book of John, I must work the works of him who sent me while it is day. The night is coming when no one can work. In other words, I got one shot at this thing. I got one lifetime in order to live a life in service to him to contribute to the kingdom of God. I need to be about his work. I must work his works. I saw a blog this week. It was fascinating. man wrote this thing, and it was really good. He was talking about how here we are in the midst of approaching a 9.1% unemployment rate in our country, and we consider that to be 
about as far as we can go. That is rough, rough times, economically speaking, for our country. But it's been estimated that the unemployment rate among kingdom activity, in other words, the amount of Christians that are saved and going to heaven but aren't really serving the Lord, is 80%. That 100% of the work that's done for the kingdom is done by 20% of the church body. And he said, imagine what the church would look like if the kingdom unemployment rate was only 9%. Imagine what that would look like. That would be revival. That would be something special to see for sure. If all of us, if everyone resolved to place a higher priority on the will and the work of the Father. And remember, not just because, oh, we owe it to him, because it satisfies it's what you're really craving. You're starving for it. Jesus said this is a different kind of food that you really need. So we just we set aside our procrastination and we consider the urgency of his will. And that's where Jesus takes us to here in verse 35. As he changes the image of food to that of the harvest, which is the source of food. He says in verse 35, Do you not say there are still four months and then comes the harvest? Behold, I say to you, lift up your eyes and look at the fields, for they are already white for harvest. This was a common expression in those days. There are still four months, and then comes the harvest. It was probably that time of the year, so it was on the tip of their tongues. The expression meant you got to be patient. Yeah, we planted the crop, but you got to give it time before we can pick the crop. It's going to be at least four months in this area of the world the green fields of growing grain would turn a grayish-white color when they were ready to be picked. That's why he says the, the fields are white for the harvest. But the disciples probably were confused by that because it wasn't time for the harvest physically. So they're going, what in the world, again, is he talking about? Except that at that point, I believe, Jesus turned their eyes towards the village <clears throat> as these villagers are coming out from the town after the woman went in and said, you need to come meet this guy at the well who told me everything about myself. And no doubt, these men are dressed in their white robes and their turbans. He's going, look at the harvest, the white of the harvest. It's ready to be picked. What an awesome picture that is as they're streaming out to see Jesus. That's the kind of harvest he was focused on. Again, in line with the kind of food and the kind of water that he wanted them focused on. The kind of harvest that was at hand. The kind of harvest that needed no waiting. Isn't that amazing when you think about it? The woman at the well, she got saved and she goes into town right away. What do a lot of Christians tell themselves? Well, I got to go to seminary or I got to learn these things or go to church for this long or I got to be involved in this thing or I got to start reading my Bible before I can talk to anyone about the Lord. And here's this completely untrained, unpolished woman and she goes into town and she starts telling people about Jesus. And I'm not so sure that Jesus would have been a big fan of this saying, four months and then comes the harvest, as it relates to the Great Commission. Let's wait a little while. Let's work on some things first. I gotta build myself up. I gotta work on me. I gotta read my Bible first. I gotta do all these things. And then the harvest. No, I think Jesus would say the harvest is at hand. Oh, there's gonna be revival someday. Well, okay. There might be. I've been locking with the Lord now for 12 years. And I've met so many people, so gifted by God. And it's so tragic when they tell you that they're waiting. Well, 
I gotta get my kids through school first. I gotta get through this trial in my life, this challenge that I'm going through, and then I can settle down and start to get to the business of God's work in my life. Pastor Damian Kyle once said, one word I could go to glory and never hear again just as a word, and that's the word revival. Because every time I hear it, it's some distance out. It needs to happen in my heart right now because the harvest is at hand. There's people around us who need Jesus today. You don't have to be a scholar. You already know the answer. You're here this morning and you're born again. You have the Holy Spirit living inside of you. The harvest is at hand for you. He continued by saying, don't get me wrong. I want revival so bad I can taste it, but I can't wait for it. we got to act on it now. Look, I'll put myself at the front of the line. I don't need any excuses as it relates to the Great Commission. Instead, I need a fire lit under me. You want a fire? I'll give you one way to help you with this just a little bit. I was on a website the other day. You can go there, too. It's called livingwaters.com. There's a tab at the top entitled Resources, and if you scroll down, there's a sub-tab underneath that tab entitled Webmaster Resources. When you click on that, you can go down to the middle of the page, and in the middle of the page, there's a red counter on the right side. And what it's doing is it's counting up the number of people that have died since you logged on to that page. And it says right below it, the vast majority of those people are entering hell. And in the time that I've taken just to tell you about that, that number would probably read around 40 by now. That's the kind of fire that we need inside of us where the Lord would say, look, the harvest is at hand. There's people that need to hear the good news. Below that counter, there is an excerpt from a letter that was written by an atheist to this ministry that hosts this site. I'll read you just a part of it. That atheist writes this, do you consider yourself compassionate of other humans? If you're right, as you say you are, then how can you sleep at night? When you speak with me, you're speaking with someone who you believe is walking directly into eternal damnation, yet you stand by and do nothing. If you believe one bit that thousands every day were falling into an eternal and unchangeable fate, you should be running into the streets with rage at their blindness. Ouch, I know that's kind of hard to hear, but it's true. I had, um, after I saw that site, I went and grabbed myself some lunch, and then I did a little bit more studying and realized that I had left that page open for a couple hours, and I came back, and that number was 20,000. 150,000 people die in our world every single day. I don't know what percentage of those people are slipping into a Christless eternity and what percentage are not, but all I do know is that the harvest is at hand. And it would have been very easy, especially for the disciples, more so than us. We, didn't, we don't have this big rivalry with anyone. It been very easy for them to look at the Samaritans and go, oh, they'll never get it. They've got so much to work through. They've been infected by all these false religions. They've got all this false tradition that's getting in the way as an excuse not to share their faith. I don't need a lot of excuses not to share my faith. I've been pretty darn good at it down throughout the years. I can find reasons. Oh, this isn't the right time. This isn't the right place. This isn't the right setting. 
And yet this Samaritan woman, who would have known that she was just one conversation away from becoming a Christian? And who would have known that just one conversion away was this village from coming out to meet Jesus? How impactful is that? How do I know? How do you know? How do we not know that the Lord doesn't have that for us today? A conversation that can have a huge impact. You know, you might be the prayer warrior going to God on behalf of others. You might be the sole winner gifted with the speech of an evangelist to share. You might be the teacher that equips the sole winner. And you might also be the laborer who's working behind the scenes, doing things that nobody knows about, so that all of us can work together in this common goal. Either way, Jesus' next point here is that sometimes we sow, other times we reap. But any time is the time to serve the Lord. And when we do, we're not only refreshed presently, but we're rewarded eternally. He says, and he who reaps receives wages and gathers fruit for eternal life. Remember, it's always fruit for eternal life when you're serving God. That both he who sows and he who reaps may rejoice together. For in this the saying is true, one sows and another reaps. Doesn't matter whether you're the one planting the seeds or whether you're the one that's winning the soul, that's leading them to Christ. We rejoice together. We receive wages. You can share with someone and share with someone and share. You can pray for someone for years and never see them come to Christ. But when they do, you'll share in that reward someday. We'll rejoice together. No distinction in heaven between those who plant the seeds and those who reap the fruit in leading them to Jesus Christ. And so what he's saying here is, here are these villagers. They're coming out to see Jesus. And the disciples are going to have a great opportunity to lead these people who were hungry for the truth. When in fact they never planted any of the seeds. That's what Jesus says here. They're just in the right place at the right time. Verse 38, I sent you to reap that for which you have not labored. Others have labored, and you have entered into their labors. You guys had nothing to do with what you get to do now. Isn't that great? You get to reap the fruit from the labor that others have done. Whether that was the labor that the Old Testament prophets had done, or John the Baptist had done, for sure what the woman had done. They had planted the seeds, and now the disciples get to meet them out there and talk to them about the good news. They get to enter into everybody else's labors. He's saying, it's been delivered to you on a silver platter, these folks coming out. Wouldn't it be great if we could all go somewhere and people would just wait in line to ask you about Jesus? That's what was happening. What a great opportunity. You know, someone leads someone to Christ. If you've done that before, sometimes you're kind of surprised when they actually want to do it. Oh, really? You, you want to say the prayer? Okay. And then afterwards, I walk away like I'm some evangelist. When in reality, God's brought 200 people over the last four weeks to tell them about the good news. And people have been praying, grandparents and parents, for decades for that person. They've been sowing the seeds. And we reap the fruit of all of that. 
Think about it. How many people in here came to Christ the very first time someone told you about the Lord? Show of hands. The very first time. One. Two. Two people in this room came to Christ the very first time. Most of us probably like a hundred times before we finally came to the Lord. It was that conversation. It was that trial in our life. Someone dragged me to a retreat. Whatever it was. Chuck Smith of Calvary Chapel, Costa Mesa said he grew up, he had a drug problem. His mom drug him to church and drug him to Bible study and <laughs> drug him to choir all throughout his life. You know, I realized that I never went back and told people in my life that had an impact in my life and on my life. I never went back and told any of those folks. A lot of them are still alive today that touched my life spiritually for Christ. There's some fruit there. They don't know about that. They don't have a clue. There's fruit in all of our lives on someone else's account. And they don't know about it. I never saw my grandfather cry until the day that his wife died. And he didn't die, he didn't cry when she died or about her. He was so strong emotionally and spiritually, always, his whole life. He cried at something that God had me share at his memorial. I was a very young Christian, and this wasn't anything that I thought of. It was just a word that the Lord gave to me. People were talking about what a great grandmother I had, and I did. I had a spectacular grandmother. And it came my time to speak, and I just said, well, all I know is, what you don't know is, I've just started going to this church in Santa Cruz. And in the last few weeks, I've led three or four people to the Lord. And all I know is, you and your wife led my mom to Christ. My mom led my dad to Christ, and my dad led me to Christ. And you don't know this, but you're going to be rewarded in heaven for your faithfulness to raise your family in the ways of the Lord. That's so true. One of my favorite illustrations is that of Jeremiah, who's known, as I've told you before, as the weeping prophet, because nobody repented at the preaching of Jeremiah. Nobody. And how many people now, today, do you think, in a world this size, with as many churches as we have, there's someone getting saved today at the preaching of Jeremiah? Being rewarded for things that happened even after he was dead. That's the kind of God that we serve. We cannot get discouraged when we share the gospel with someone and they don't receive it initially. We're just sowing seeds that someone else may reap someday. And guess what? Sometimes we're on the other side of that. Like the disciples, we have the privilege of reaping the fruit. Someone raises their hand in church or gets baptized like they did a few weeks ago, and we all get to benefit. We get to rejoice in that, even though we weren't the one who labored for it. We're not the ones who planted the seeds. That's what the disciples got to see on this day. It says in verse 39, And many of the Samaritans of that city believed in him because of the word of the woman who testified, he told me all that I ever did. Jesus used masterful metaphors and powerful parallels, and she just shared her testimony. And people came out to see Jesus. 
and many, it says, believed. And many more came to check it out. It said in verse 40, so when the Samaritans had come to him, they urged him to stay with him, and he stayed there two days. Now, isn't that interesting? What happened to the rivalry? It's gone. Jesus Christ breaks through all of that. Jew, Greek, black, white, male or female, Baptist and Methodist, it doesn't make any difference at all whatsoever. He breaks through all of that. They're showing these Jews some hospitality. Forget that McDonald's. You've got to have these Samaritan sandwiches. And that was probably some sweet hospitality. We know nothing of the excitement level of the disciples as it relates to this. Might have been a little bit tougher for them at first. But they opened their home to them because Jesus broke through that in their lives. It says, and many more believed because of his own word. Power, the power of a testimony can't hold a, a candle to his word. Then they said to the woman, now we believe. Not because of what you said, for we ourselves have heard him and we know that this is indeed the Christ, the Savior of the world. So some believed because of her testimony, but more believed because of what he said. And they were clear to point that out to her. Remember, she wasn't exactly the most popular in the community. It's not because of what you said. I just want to make sure you understand. It wasn't what you said. We heard what he had to say. Well, that's still true today, by the way. Testimony isn't the gospel. A testimony is meant to intrigue somebody about what the Lord can do in their own life tells us something very important about our job. Because again, here's this woman. She's untrained. She hasn't gone to Bible college yet. She hasn't been going to church for years. She hasn't been attending Bible study. She just is inviting people to church. It's not her word. It's not your word. It's not my word. It's the word of God. That makes a difference. It's when they say, no, we heard his word, and then now we believe. That's why most people come to Christ, when they finally hear his word. We should be encouraged today that we don't have to have all the fancy lines and all the comebacks, handle people's objections. Just like this woman, come and see. Come and see. See what it's like. Hear his word. Hear people worshiping him and see that it doesn't impact you in the same way that it impacted me and provide for you that quenching of the soul that deep down satisfaction of that hunger that you have lord we thank you and we praise